I want, if I may, just to share with you something of the message we read together from this passage in Colossians, mainly chapter 2, but the latter part of chapter 1. There were three main sections of it I want to share in some way that we might see what ministry was being given to these people in Colossae by Paul the Apostle. He was, of course, in prison when this letter was sent, so he was distant from them. In fact, he'd never been to see them. He'd never been to that church to meet Personally, the people there, he knew some of them, and some of them even shared with his ministry and in the prison and so on. But the, the normal people, as it were, they would be there in Colossae. They, they'd heard of him, never seen him. Yet he had an important message to them. And as you read this message, not only that, you will see that there was a, a very intimate concern within his hearts for them. It wasn't something distant just because he was distant from them. It was something that was very deep and powerful as he wanted to share the things of God with them. I don't know, but I guess that perhaps most of us here know people who are working for God in foreign countries. You know about them. You've never been to see them. The chances are you will never go to see them where they are. But somehow you have a a deep interest in what's going on. And they are the object of your prayers, very possibly the object of your giving. And you share with them, and so on. This can easily be done for the people of God. And this was so with Paul's ministry. And he starts to talk about it. He's opening his heart here about how he feels, how it affects him, what he wants to convey to others. And it begins with mentioning the continued suffering which is taking place. And he comes out with the Perhaps a strange thought at first. He sees, he rejoices in what was suffered for them. And he says he fills up in his flesh what is lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions. Now, suppose a very quick and cursory glance would tell you, well, that's a very strange statement to make. 
something lacking in Christ's afflictions. But in no way does this refer to the finished work of Jesus on the cross. What took place on the cross, he finished. He said, it is finished. And once for all, forever. The work was completely done. You cannot add to it. You cannot improve it. It is but to be received by faith. But yet, even after Jesus suffered on the cross and finished that work, after he rose from the dead and appeared to his disciples, he said to them, Go ye into all the world, make disciples of all nations, teach them to observe everything that I've told you, Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And in doing that, I'm with you, even to the end of the age. And this, of course, is the unfinished gospel proclamation, which must continue now and does actually affect much suffering for those who are prepared to engage in it. And this is what Paul himself rejoiced, that he was counted worthy to be part of this ministry. Think of some of the things he said. This is from Corinthians. He says he's involved in great endurance, in troubles, in hardships, in distresses, beatings, imprisonments, riots, hard work, sleepless nights, hunger. And so fulfill with Christ, who was with him in it. If we suffer, there is that sense that the Saviour understands it too. And in this continued suffering, his job was to strengthen the church, the body of Christ, to help each and every believer as far as he could and as much as he could to pursue the pilgrim way. He was engaged then in costly service. And for him, this costly service consisted in preaching the word. Yes, his job was to tell sinners the old, old story of Jesus and his love of Jesus and his power to save those that would trust upon him. To tell the saints of the all-sufficient help and grace 
that God can provide for them upon the way and to present a message which was for time and for eternity. There is no other message like it, of course. He then tells us that not only that, but he is proclaiming the mystery. All down the years, the Old Testament saints heard a bit here and a bit there about what was going to happen, how it would happen, about the Messiah who would come. But there was much mystery attached to it. But then Jesus came, born of a virgin, did mighty acts and miracles, lived a life beyond compare, taught as no one else could teach, died upon a cross to be our saviour, rose again from the dead the third day, ascended to heaven, interceding for you and me, even now, promise coming back someday. This mystery unfolded to us. We can read it all in this precious book. The mystery, of course, involved the Gentiles, a concept that the Jews had never really thought of. But the Gentiles were involved too to know the workings of this mystery in the saving power of Jesus Christ and that all might know of him. The Ephesians, Paul writes that this mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. And then written in what Paul has to say, there is a, a cheerful satisfaction. The one thing he wanted to see was progress in Christ. That was the object, that's what he wanted to do. Nothing brought more joy to his heart than that someone was walking with Christ, being a vital living testimony for Jesus. And there's a couple of interesting things in chapter 2, verse 5, that he mentions. They are really army words. Discipline and determination. He stresses that there is some importance in being orderly. In life. Now, we live in a casual age. 
And often people live moment to moment, day to day, and it just uh, doesn't seem to piece together very well. But I think Paul is trying to direct believers to have a disciplined life. Very simple example, of course, is your quiet time. Not easy to have a quiet time if you say, I'll have it any time, I think, sometime in the day. There will easily become times when somehow it doesn't seem to fit into the day. How much better to have that time, first thing in the day, to spend a little time with Jesus in his word and build upon it. If we are people who say, well, on the Sunday I'll go to worship if I think like it, of course there will be times when you don't feel like it you don't go how much better to be orderly and say that's the way it's done and then they are to be determined or they are to be firm in faith not easily swayed powerfully, zealously pressing forward with the Master. And then there's a commendable sequence. What Paul wants is to see the maturity or the increasing maturity of the believers. He wants to see growth in grace, to see godliness displayed, to see the fruit of holiness in the life. He tried, he says, to encourage them in their hearts, to unite them in love, and to give them a comprehensive understanding of the things of God. What a vast ministry he had. I did just ask myself or felt directed to think on a quiet time one day. All this is Holy Spirit directed ministry. And we must all be engaged in it in some way. Some perhaps speak, but for many it's a one-to-one, one-to-a-small group or within a family area and so on. What are the characteristics we might display if we are engaged in ministry for Jesus? I'm going to suggest just a few. I'm sure you'll be able to add to it. You may be able to improve it in many ways. But here are one or two. 
perhaps to challenge us. If it's Holy Spirit-directed ministry, we need a pure motive for what we are doing. We need a loving attitude towards those we minister. We need to display gracious words to those we meet. You appreciate all these were the characteristics of the Lord Jesus. We need a prayerful spirit as we engage with others in any depth for Jesus and understanding thoughts coupled with a compassionate heart. We need to ask for a sensitive spirit. We must have biblical thinking in our deliberations. And that must be backed by a holy life in all that we do. We need deep, sincere concerns for others. For each of us may well meet people who are in situations where we have never been. We don't understand it as they have known it. And we need godly wisdom in all that we do. Paul talks about energy given forward in this work. He says he, he warns people, he teaches people, he preaches to people, he labours amongst them, he strives and struggles for their good. Now the second aspect of our chapter, verses 8 to 10 of chapter 2, is really concerning beware of heresy. In Colossians, this, this keeps coming up every so often because it's all part of why the book was written. And there are different ways of dealing with heresy. Of course, you can go straight to the point and tell the people concerned all about it. Or you can merely state what is true and leave people to devise the answer. And uh, at this point, Paul is doing the second of those. Heresy, of course, is false teaching. It's where doubts are expressed or implied. It is the setting of seed 
or the placing of doubt concerning the truth. It may involve watering down the truth. It may concern contradicting the truth. There are two thoughts mentioned here, one of which raises the question, was Christ fully God? Was he? Is it really the case that he was God? And questions are asked. Well, of course, the scripture tells us that he was. He was the express image, the very representation of God. He was with God. He was God. But there were people here amongst the Colossians who raised question marks. Many heresies, of course, are all around this fact of Jesus. And another question Was the work of Jesus Christ, was his saving work sufficient? Was it fully sufficient? Did it need addition? Or are we complete in him? And this again was being circulated And Paul tells us not only that Jesus Christ was fully God, but his saving work was fully and completely sufficient. He is able to save completely to the uttermost forever them that come unto God through him. There is salvation in no other. There is no other name under heaven amongst men whereby we must be saved. And then he warns them of possible futile bases. Human tradition, worldly principle, because the believer lives in a different sphere in these respects. And in all these respects, we need to ask the question, who is this God with whom we have to deal? Can we just sow seeds of doubt and questions about him? God is not mocked. So what is the real issue? What is sin? And ultimately, where does authority lie? Is it in your traditions? Is it in your worldly principles or even culture? Or is it in the word of God? 
These were the questions being raised. Now, third thought concerns the question of forgiveness. There's a small phrase in these last few verses. He forgave us all our sins. Is there anything more wonderful, more precious, more meaningful in life than to know that we have been forgiven? Oh, happy day, we sing, when Jesus washed my sins away, we have been forgiven. It was costly. It meant a sacrificial death, but he forgave us as we trusted in his grace. All our sin. You've been to the seaside. Many times, no doubt. Tell you about a boy who went to the seaside. Bucket and spade is the order of the day. And so he made sandcastles on the sand. Big ones, small ones. A whole mass of them for his day's work. Then it was time to go home and go to bed, and so off he goes. He comes back the next morning to see his display of castles, and there are none left. They have all gone. The tide came in and took them all away. when the tide of God's mercy touches our lives, when the blood of Jesus is appropriated to us, every sin must go and we receive full forgiveness in the one who was made sin for us. Our debt to the law has been fully paid. We were bankrupt. As far as we got, we couldn't pay it all. We couldn't pay any of it. Jesus paid it all. All to him we owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. And now we live under grace. Sin shall not have dominion over you. You are not under the law. You are under grace. And grace has touched your life. Who is a pardoning God like thee? And who has grace so rich and free? Because of the tragedies of life, perhaps memory is still there to some extent. It could well be that scars are there 
while this life remains. But if Jesus cleanses the soul, the sting, the guilt, the effect has gone because we are forgiven in Jesus Christ. So we have the victory of the cross, the victory over all the powers of evil. They have been defeated or disarmed. They have been denounced because Christ made a public spectacle of them. They have been demeaned because he triumphed over them at the cross. There's an old song. He the pearly gates will open so that I may enter in. For he purchased my redemption. He forgave me all my sin. So let's thank God tonight for all the blessings we've got. Press on more and more to the prize in Jesus Christ. Amen.